0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show, Now, regular listeners of the show will know that from time to time I like to bring you a show that I've come across that I think you'll really enjoy. And recently I came across the show The Prosecutors hosted by the wonderful Alice and Brett. Now, it's a show that's been around since 2020. It's fantastic. Uh, And having a show which is often heavily, of course, swayed in the defence side, I was fascinated to hear from two actual prosecutors discussing cases from their viewpoint. And after a few weeks of listening to the show, I reached out to Alice and Brett and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the show. I want to get your viewpoint on the job of a prosecutor as well as bring you some of my gripes with this system, like the jury system and uh, felony murder rule, and get your opinion on those things. It was a really great chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Look, Brett, Alice, right. thank you so much indeed for, for coming and, and hanging out with us on One Minute Remaining. I truly appreciate it. I said to you off air that unfortunately on this show, prosecutors get a bit of a rough end of the stick, So, uh, and I, I'm all for the right of reply, so it's lovely to have some prosecutors on the show.
1: Thanks for having us. We are so excited to have the right of reply here.
2: <laughs> so, obviously, you know, prosecutors—you're busy people. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on when it comes to the law. Brett, why start a podcast?
3: Well, I, I mean, this is something that I'd want to do for a while, and basically, I conned Alice into it. Alice and I worked together. We were both prosecutors. We shared a wall. And what we would do when we weren't working on our own cases is we'd be like going to get coffee or something, and we're talking about these true crime cases. And several times, I was like, you know, Alice, we should do a podcast. And Alice said, no, we're never going to do a podcast. That's crazy. Are you an insane person? And the thing is, it was crazy because acting, working prosecutors are terrified of the media. They never talk to the media. They don't have podcasts. Usually, the people you hear on podcasts are defense attorneys. Yeah, You know, they're much more media savvy than prosecutors are. And it was a little out there, but eventually... You know, through just wearing her down, I was able to convince Alice to do it, and I would like to think that Alice now thinks it was a good idea. Alice, right of reply?
1: Boy, have I been waiting for the right of reply to Brett. <laughs> um, everything Brett said was absolutely true. I mean, we work together. We've worked together for several years in several jobs. We have an awesome working relationship, and even better than that, you know, we're friends outside of work. And it just hit at the perfect time. I had just had. Another baby, so I was not sleeping. Anyways, yeah. I thought if I'm not sleeping, might as well do a podcast, and that honestly was what wore wore me down was the lack of sleep. Um, and Brett asking for a couple years, and I said, why not? And it was perfect because you know we recorded our first episode uh, the week of March 13th, 2020. We literally recorded in person together. And I think the next day there was the order, at least in the United States, that everything was shut down because of COVID. And, you know, luckily for us, we had, you know, great rapport from being friends for many years that we knew recording separately wasn't going to affect the quality of our conversations. And so we started just recording separately because no one was allowed to leave their homes. We couldn't go to work. You know, we worked remotely, but we were all kind of just at home doing nothing. And kind of out of the, the darkness of COVID and quarantine, was born this beautiful podcast that I truly don't think we would have had time for otherwise. And, and
2: now, you know, you've got a wine sponsor. So life is just complete. So, you know, I mean, I'm going to have to ask you off air how that happens, because I'm still trying to jag a wine sponsor.
1: <laughs> it, it only took three years. I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> oh,
2: shit. All right. I've got a fair way to wait then. <laughs>
3: so uh, what i'm still waiting for the bourbon sponsorship yeah right okay i'm
2: sure it'll come i'm sure it'll come drop some names while we're talking you never know who might give you a call uh so now what i what i enjoyed because obviously i've listened i went back and listened to the very first podcast because you can learn a lot from from the first episode and you know and, and a bit about you guys and what i did like is you know you guys were talking about kind of the role of the prosecutor and what i liked was i think alice you said that you know just because a case comes across your desk doesn't mean you're going to prosecute it. Because obviously doing what I do, naturally, I have come across some situations of prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, we'll talk about um, a, a case that we've both covered um, very soon. But, I, you know, it's it's nice to hear from a prosecutor say, well, look, just because someone brings a case across the, the desk doesn't mean this is going to trial. So, you know, in your words, what would you say is the role of a prosecutor, apart from obviously prosecuting criminals?
1: Absolutely, you know, I, I think that is a part of prosecuting that people don't see. Our role as prosecutors is always to do what is right in the eyes of the law. So we are not trying to rack up convictions. We're not trying to rack up, um, uh, you know, in indictments or complaints. We truly are trying to find justice for victims and also to properly enforce the law so that we can continue to live in the civilized society that we would, you know, we've all kind of agreed to as the rules. And a huge part of being a prosecutor is recognizing what type of case you have and whether you have enough, beyond a reasonable doubt, to be able to carry the case forward um, to the charging stage and to carry it all the way through. Um, And that is a very serious um, responsibility that we hold. If at any point in the investigation or even after you've brought charges, something comes to light that makes you doubt Your case is strong enough to go to the jury. Your duty, uh, your ethical duty as the prosecutor is to do something about it. Um, And so I think that is the biggest thing is, at least for me and for Brett, our job is not to rack up another conviction, to put another person in jail like a lot of people think prosecutors do. It truly is to seek justice for you know, society and for the victim.
2: Brett, have you come across cases where you've said there's just not enough here for us to go ahead with this?
3: No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Alice and I have, have had that happen a lot. I mean, I've had cases where I thought in reading the police report that the police report made me wonder whether or not I was getting the truth from the officers. Right that have led me to say, you know, we're, you know, just the way this this scene is being described does not sound logical to me. So I feel like there's something missing. And rather than just push forward with the prosecution anyway, that's the kind of thing where you say, we're not, we're not going to pursue this. Now look, you know, I think the thing to always remember, there are crimes that have very obvious victims and there are crimes that don't. And or where the victims, you know, I mean it's not when someone is murdered and you have a family grieving over the loss of their loved one, making a decision not to prosecute that case, that's really hard. Right. You know, when you have like a financial crime or something like that, where maybe the victim's not as obvious and the evidence not there, you know, it's a little bit easier, but you know, I think people often criticize prosecutors for pursuing cases that they personally feel like there is a question about guilt or innocence. And sometimes I wish people would at least, even if you disagree with the conviction, give the, the prosecutor some grace and yep. think about what they were thinking about in that situation. You know, a lot, of, a lot of cases that we look at that are wrongful conviction cases, they tend to be things like murder cases, you know, and, and ultimately there's no justice if the wrong person's convicted. But usually, I hope <laughs> the prosecutor believed that the person that they were prosecuting was guilty, and I think in cases like that, you will sometimes see people who are more willing to take a case to trial that maybe isn't as solid as they would like. You know I'll give you an example from Australia, the Chris Dawson case, yep, right? Now, I think he's guilty, and I'm glad he was found guilty, but I got admit when I was listening to the judge read his opinion. There was a lot. Of, there were a lot of times there where I was thinking, I don't know if he's going to find him guilty because it seems like maybe there's some doubt here, right? And that that is a case where it is, if it's beyond a reasonable doubt, it's just beyond it, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. th- there wasn't a ton of evidence there. There's nobody like all that sort of stuff. But at some point, you just have to decide: Are we going to go after this person? Present the best case we can to try and bring justice to a person who's a victim. When we truly believe he did it, and 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 maybe we'll win, maybe we'll lose. You know, was that a bad prosecution? Because it wasn't a slam dunk. Because there were questions. Because there may be people to this day who wonder if he's guilty or not. I don't think it was. But those are the kind of tough calls. And I feel like sometimes in true crime, people are so they're so passionate, and I totally respect the passion. They're so passionate about maybe vindicating a wrongful conviction that they forget about the other side. And we try and remind people that even when we agree with them. And there have been cases we've looked at where we do think, you know, it is a wrongful conviction in cases where we think prosecutors not only got it wrong, but maybe did some things that were wrong.
2: Looking at a case where it can go terribly wrong, you know, we both covered the case of Temujin Kenzu. Um, you know, I, I interviewed Temujin um, over a number of weeks and he, he told me his story. And even looking at that, I was holding my head in my hands going, I don't understand how this ever made it into a courtroom.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you... um interviewed Temujin and gave him the airspace to be able to tell his story. That's incredible. Uh, we actually looked into that case in the first instance because our friend, Maggie Freeling, who often covers uh, wrongful convictions, covered it on her podcast yep. and then asked us as the prosecutors on the other side to look at it. And that was, you know, when we first got on on this um, uh, chat with you, I said that we love the other side. And that's precisely why. Because Temujin Kensu should not be in prison. And I think the only way he's going to get out is people from both sides advocating for him. Yeah, you know, absolutely. we've been very vocal about what we think after looking at all the evidence. Um, and in this particular instance, you know, you heard our first, first episode. There are a lot of things that attribute um, that that contribute to a wrongful, wrongful conviction. It's not always prosecutorial misconduct. There's also obviously tunnel vision. There's inexperiences, all these things. In this situation, unfortunately, I think it was kind of all at play. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this where there was a moment in time with like the satanic panic in the United States that gripped people's attention. And people wanted a good story. They wanted to blame something that was, you know, the otherworldly that they couldn't put their fingers around. This was like some fantasy in the worst kind of way that was living out in someone's actual life. And that was Temujin's case. Um, and, and it was terrible. And the, the problem with his case that we're seeing is that one wrongfully convicted person is one too many. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have a judicial system that will always be imperfect in some way because it is a system made up of people who are flawed whether they have good intentions or bad intentions and you're going to have both in any sort of a human system and he unfortunately is that the one too many but it is difficult for us we we absolutely advocate for you know any wrongful convictions to be ha- to have a hard look at but it's difficult when the conversation immediately turns to tear the system down because the difficulty is then what do you do for his instance i mean We've already put all the calls out. Everyone should be writing, you know, the governor. And every podcast should be covering him. He should be on every single show. If he wants to be interviewed on, you know, whatever TV network, whatever podcast, whatever documentary, I hope he gets that airtime. Because at this point, I think it will only be public pressure that gets him out.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit
0: jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit juvederm.com.
2: One thing I'd love to talk with you guys about, I mean, off the back of the Temujin Kenzu case, Um, is juries, because people who listen to this show regularly will know that I have a big issue with the jury system for uh, a multitude of reasons. But you look at a case like Temujin Kenzu's case and the evidence, so to speak, that they were presented with and the idea that he hired this plane and flew across 400 miles to commit this crime, to kill a guy that he didn't know, he had no money to hire a plane, there was no records of a plane being flown anywhere, they had a terrible witness. And I just look at that and go, how does a jury come to a guilty decision on that? Brett, what's your thoughts on the jury system as a whole?
3: So I love the jury system. I think the jury system is is a good thing. And I'll tell you why for, uh, there's a few reasons. Number one, you know, to get big picture, and we talk about this a lot on the show, the jury system is sort of a bulwark against tyranny. It's a, it is the involvement of the community in the justice system it ensures that you're not, you know, you always talk about, he's judge, jury, and executioner, right? Well, in our system, the government is not judge, jury, and executioner. You know, the government can arrest you, and the government will prosecute you, and there's a judge who works for the government, but without 12 random people coming together and agreeing that you're guilty, you know, you're not going to be convicted. And for what, what needs to happen, and here's the thing about systems, So the reason no system gets it right is because all systems are made up of people. And at some point in every system, there are going to be people who have a responsibility that they're either going to live up to or not live up to. So take Timogen Kinsu. I agree with you. I don't think any reasonable jury could look at that evidence and find Timogen Kinsu guilty. Well, in our system, that is when the judge is supposed to step in. If the jury, if the jury finds you not guilty, it's over. Yeah. If the jury finds you guilty, the judge can say, thank you for your service. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, Great job, being Patriots. Excuse the jury and then say, look, guys, I heard the evidence too. No way. That's absurd. I'm entering a judgment. So condition. that's news to me, to be honest. I, takes... I didn't know that a judge was able to
2: actually overrule the decision of, of a jury. That's, uh, that's something I've completely learned right now.
3: Only from guilty to innocent. Right. So if the jury says not guilty, the case is over and it can never be tried again in the United States. Yep. of double jeopardy. But a judge can and should step in when a jury verdict is not supported by the weight of the evidence. In fact, and we saw this. I don't know if you followed the Sarah Turney, Alyssa Turney case in the United States. No, I'm not familiar so Sarah with Turney has a podcast that's called Voices for Justice. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard it. She started it because her her sister disappeared. And she believed her father actually murdered her sister. Terrible, tragic case. And after 20 or so years, they were able, through partially through her work, to get enough evidence that the the prosecution basically said, kind of like we were talking about earlier, this is our one chance. If we're ever going to go to trial, it has to be now. So they decided to go to trial. They put on their case. At the end of their case, before it even went to the jury, the defense attorneys can ask for a judgment of acquittal. And they basically can say, you've now seen the prosecution's evidence. It is not enough. A reasonable jury could not find this person guilty. We're asking you, the judge, to go ahead and enter a judgment of acquittal in this case right now. And in that case... Is you know, as hard as they tried, the prosecution just couldn't quite get there. And the judge actually entered a judgment of acquittal in that case. And so that's sort of an example of that, that safety valve where a judge had to make an incredibly difficult decision. Because, you know, it was like we were talking about the decision of prosecutor not to prosecute a murder case. Even harder decision.
2: I mean, it would take a very strong judge to go against everyone and say, "Guys, this can't go on. There's not enough here, and stop it." So, I mean, it would take a very strong. I mean, hopefully, most judges, if they're in that position, would make those decisions because that's why they're there.
3: I mean, it's it's a tough one, though. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> it's yeah, much you're gonna have some very it's angry people. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know, I think what what a lot of people would coming back at me would say. Look, you can say that. But it is so hard for a judge not to just say, "I'm going to let the jury decide." And if the jury says guilty, then it's guilty. Yeah, right. I mean, that is hard for a judge to do. But that is that is a safety valve on that. I'm not saying it makes the jury system perfect, but I personally have always liked the fact that you know, juries are, aren't supposed to have to know the law because judges are supposed to be making legal decisions. What a jury is supposed to be determining is they're using their common sense to to decide facts, which is what they do every day, and they are qualified to do that. No, they're not qualified to rule on complex evidentiary issues. That's for a judge. But to say, you know, I think that person when they were on the stand was lying or to, or to what they should have said to themselves is there's no way Timijin Kinsu rented a plane, flew down there, then got a car somehow, then murdered this person the on, with the only person who the only witness who can testify only remembers it's him after hypnosis. I mean, like that case. Shocking. Going back to that case, never it never should have been prosecuted. I mean, you're right. I mean, th- that is a case where the prosecution should have taken a step back and said, we're not, not, we're even if it's him, we need to get more evidence before we go forward because what we have just isn't enough to put a man in prison for the rest of his life.
2: Alice, I mean, looking at, still staying on that jury topic for the moment. And, you know, obviously, Brett, you mentioned they, they don't need to know the law. I mean, I feel like even a sort of, for instance, there's another case I cover where a gentleman got found guilty of, of murder and, you know, his attorneys went into the jury afterwards to just talk to them and say, you know, how did you come to this decision? And one of the jury members said to him, well, look, we, we didn't think he did it, but then again, you didn't give us any suggestion of who may have done it. And obviously, there's reasonable doubt. I mean, that's what that is. what that is. So, So for me, it's just like they obviously had no understanding of, well, it's not the it's not the defence's job to tell you who would have done it if it wasn't him. I feel like there should be some, at least some sort of outlining of of things like that, of, of reasonable doubt. Hey, guys, if you cannot come to the decision that this is one hundred percent he did it, no matter what else is involved it's not guilty.
1: And you're absolutely right. Everyone has to be doing their jobs within the court system, right? And and the thing with that particular juror, at least in the American system, the attorneys should have told them that, right? Not only the defense, but the prosecution in their opening, in their closing, can instruct and explain to lay people who are not trained in the law what reasonable doubt means beyond a reasonable doubt in a jury charge that the attorneys actually help you know, negotiate and actually fight over um, and bring it before the judge where the judge makes a ruling on what jury instructions are given to a a jury uh, should have included that. And it probably did. Now, at the end of the day, for those of us who have kids, sometimes you can explain something to the kids <laughs> ad nauseum yeah. and they'll never understand. Right. You can be like, don't put your finger in the electric socket. You will get shocked. And you can say it a hundred different times and they may not ever understand. That can still happen with the jury, but we we have to take all of the steps we can and at the end of the day that last step we can't be completely paternalistic. There has to be some sort of faith in your your, you know, jury pool that they'll have listened to the judge, they'll have listened to the attorneys, but there There is a role for every single person in the judicial system to play in order to ensure what you just said didn't happen. And that actually goes back to the first question you asked us. Why are we doing a podcast? Part of the reason we decided to do a podcast wasn't just because we liked talking with each other about true crime. Truly, we have seen what the jury pool looks like because we try cases all the time we pick jurors we get to talk to them back you know in a a small room with a judge and hear what they're thinking and hear them say things like you just said that are shocking and horrendous and should not be what an educated civilian in our society thinks about the law yet we were seeing that over and over and so we thought you know what if our podcast even if it's boring talking about about the law, can help kind of reach the masses for the masses who may not have law degrees, understand what their basic civic duties are and what the constitution requires. Maybe we can raise the understanding of civics for our entire jury pool and there's more justice in that way. And that's partly why we take all these detours within our true crime storytelling to explain things about the law because we think it's incredibly important for everyone to understand so that if they are called to serve on a jury, which most of us probably will be at some point, even if we're not ultimately picked for the jury, can educate ourselves and educate those around us to understand what I think maybe a couple decades ago, we did a better job of teaching the, the basic population about civics. So I, I agree. I agree with you. What you just said is is horrendous, but I don't think that reason alone is uh, the reason to get rid of the jury system. I think what that shows is there's a lot of work to be done mm. to ensure that this bulwark against tyranny
0: works.
2: And I, and I love that because I mean, I, I, I often say in my show now, because I never started this show, you know, thinking it would go where it go. I thought it'd just be interesting stories from people who are in prison. And it's turned into this thing where it's just like, wow, there are issues here that need to be addressed. And I, I do say myself, I hope that one day if they do end up in a jury, that will help their decision making process. But though, although I do hear now that when there's jury selection, the jury are possibly asked questions like, what podcast do you listen to? <laughs> yeah.
3: I keep waiting for somebody to say they listen to hours, but so far that hasn't happened. You know, one thing I'll point out, and I think this is true in all jurisdictions in the United States, Alice can correct me if I'm wrong. You can waive your right to a jury. In the oh, yeah, States, right, you yeah. can decide to have a judge. Just have a judge, yeah. Hear your case. But I I'll tell you what, most defense attorneys wouldn't do that because it, it swings both ways, right? Because sometimes of course. we hear from juries who don't understand reasonable doubt on the other side. You know that they, they think it's beyond any doubt, or, you know, or, or whatever, and then obviously that's, that's not true either. So, so it can, you know, it can. Oh, I'm you know, sure there's plenty of people that should have been found guilty
2: negative. that are walking the streets because the jury went not guilty. And everyone's like, "How are you saying this person's not guilty?" <laughs> right, you know. Right.
1: One last thing, just a plug for 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 juries is, in addition to kind of all the protections that are in place, I wanted to note one other thing that people may not know, and that's jury nullification right? The judge needs to follow the law because there are appellate courts above them who, if he decides to go rogue or he or she decides to go rogue and say, you know what? The law says I can't do this, but I'm going to do it because I feel like it's right. That judge will get overturned and told to do the right thing under the law by an appellate court. The jury is beholden to no higher power. So the jury can have uh, no reasonable doubt whatsoever and say, you know what? I don't care that this meets the law, this meets the facts, I'm going to go against what the facts and the law tell me here, because I, as a person on a jury, can do that. Now, you have to convince, you know, other juror members to follow you, but that actually is something that a judge cannot do. So you can actually get an outcome that is contrary to the facts and the law out of a jury that you can't get out of a judge. So that's an additional protection that not everybody knows is there. Now, it's a big step for a a jury to do that, but it's available to them.
2: All right. Well, it's interesting. Some good arguments there, and I've certainly learned a lot. I still don't think I'd ever have a jury of 12 people decide. I mean, I, I know the sort of people that uh, live in my area, so let's just say I wouldn't trust them with my life. <laughs> 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 what I want to talk about, because we, we recently covered a case um, with something that's quite controversial, I want to just hear you know, a, an opinion from, from you guys on it, is this the felony murder rule. But this particular case, this guy was, you know, he was a drug dealer doing the wrong things, all that sort of stuff. Drops off a friend um, to do a drug deal, and then he leaves, and he goes off and does his own thing. In the process of him being away, the guy that he drops off gets shot and killed. First, he he got um, arrested and and charged with second degree murder and armed criminal action, and he goes to to court on that, and then they add in the felony. Felony murder rule in there, and that the you know the the jury finds him not guilty. Of the armed criminal action. They said they don't believe him to be the shooter because evidence evidence that was brought to show he wasn't there, but they find him guilty of sec, uh, of second degree murder under this felony murder rule. So he didn't kill anyone yet. He's serving over thirty years for this for the murder. Uh, I mean, and I know it's a controversial one. I mean, in my opinion, I feel like he should have gone to prison for the drug stuff. You know, he's doing the wrong thing. He shouldn't be selling drugs. You got to pay the price. But to give someone 35 years, you know, I know there's arguments to say, well, if he hadn't dropped the guy off, he wouldn't have died. But, you know, to give someone 35 years and a second degree murder charge for, for, for not killing anyone, for me, seems like
3: harsh. Well, I mean, I like the felony murder rule because it gives flexibility to the judges and prosecutors. And we talk about this sometimes. Just because you have the rule doesn't mean you have to apply it in all circumstances. Yeah. And I want to have the ability to apply that rule in cases where it should be applied. So in cases where you do something that's incredibly dangerous, that's a felony, that you know, you know somebody could get hurt. And yeah, you didn't intend for him to die, but you did it anyway. You know, you walk into a store, you know, with a gun and, and rob it. And the the store owner, God bless him, for some reason, decides to like try and grab the gun and the gun goes off. You didn't mean to shoot that person, but you walked into that store with a loaded firearm with intent to rob them. So to me, I don't have a problem with the fact that you did that and someone died, there being a harsher penalty available to prosecutors to bring against you. Now, in the case you mentioned, I think that is a case, once again, where prosecutor discretion probably should have come in, where you could have said, You know, we're not going to charge you with this. Maybe, frankly, you could have used that as as some bargaining tools for plea agreements, which is another thing. You know, having the ability to charge different things also allows you to craft plea agreements. But it is, is, I think it's a hammer that you need. I think it is easy to come up with cases where it was misused. And I think where we can all agree it's misused. But I think it's also pretty easy to look at cases where you're glad that prosecutors were able to use it against people who who were doing really dangerous things that we don't want people to do. I mean, that's part of this is punishing people. Part of it's rehabilitating people. Part of it is we want people to know if you do this thing, if you set up a situation that where someone could die, and they die, even if you didn't mean them to, you're going to pay the price for that. And I like having that hammer to hit people with in certain cases.
2: My, my thing, Alice, would be, as you said, Brett there, you know, it's nice to have these things to, to sort of deter people. But I would question whether it does, because, you know, you look at the incarceration rate in the United States, which is very high. And the United States has some of the harshest penalties going. Like I speak to people who have got, I've got a a guy who's got a hundred year sentence, a hundred year prison sentence. He didn't kill anyone or hurt anyone. It's a long story, but you know, he, he basically pissed off the judge and the judge gave him the maximum on every one of his sentences and a hundred years without parole. But, I mean, you know, you hand out these 100-year sentences and, you know, 65-year sentences. You know, there's a teenager in this particular instance with the um, felony murder All Him and four of his mates went and robbed a house. The cops turned up. His mate got shot and they get charged with felony murder and he gets 65 years. It's like, does it work, They're having these things as deterrents, so to speak? I know you've got to have something, but, you know, I just I wonder if it, if it works.
1: I mean, that's a fantastic question. It really is. Because, again, we're not in this business just to rack up the number of people we get into prison. Yeah. Ultimately, what we want is safer streets. And, you know, there are studies about this. And, you know, we don't we don't do those studies. So we don't know. But I will tell you, there are certain charges that you can bring, um, like the felony murder um. Uh, rule, or federal cases, for example, like I'm thinking about a felon in possession. That seems like a pretty innocuous thing. Literally, you're a felon who holds a gun, right? That That's enough to be charged under a pretty harsh sentencing structure in the federal system. But the purpose of that rule not is not just to get out there and be like, gotcha, 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 everyone, you know, prison for you, prison for you. The purpose of that is basically to get the most dangerous people off the streets that have eluded other methods of getting them off the street, whether because um, maybe the state and locals don't have the resources to properly prosecute and hold them in prison. I say all this to say, when you see decreases in using those tools to get really dangerous people off the streets, at least in the United States right now, in almost every single urban city, we've seen a decrease in using certain tools like that to get dangerous people off the streets and crime has skyrocketed, right? And that's not just in one one place, not another place. There could be lots of other factors. You know, we've heard of uh, economics and uh, all different types of policies can have effects on it. But at the end of the day, it's kind of hard to prove the negative when you say, well, there's so many people in prison, the incarceration rate is so high, that must mean it's not working. It's hard to make that claim when the opposite could be true. And, you know, in our limited experience, by limited, I mean, we're not talking about the entire United States, but in what we've prosecuted, you know, we do see high levels of recidivism. And that is incredibly unfortunate. I don't want to waste my resources going after the same person. Yeah, of course. But unfortunately, we do see that because of the the shift over time and how we sentence people. The hundred year that you're noting, that, that very well may be, I don't know what year that's from, but, you know, there has been, a long, long discussion in uh, the United States, you know, Congress and um, legislature about what is appropriate, and whether we should be sentencing people more or less. And what we have is unfortunately the swing back and forth. And they swing a little too quickly, in my opinion, to really see the effects of it. And what we do have is disparities in sentencing, because you happen to be sentenced in a time when everyone was like, wow, crime is so bad. We need to start handing out 100-year sentences. And then maybe someone else is elected and they said, wow, way too many people are in prison. We need to swing the other direction. And then someone who would have gotten a harsher sentence all of a sudden is walking out on probation. And so part of it is this dialogue with the legislature of political whims that may not be rooted in reality. But as you've noted, real lives are affected.
2: Yes, well, look, there is issues. But of course, as we say, there is issues in every system. Nothing is ever going to be perfect. But uh, guys, it has been absolutely perfect having you uh, on the show. Um, You know, I I always said that I, I don't want this show to be biased in any particular direction. But of course, when you're talking to one side of the argument, it's always going to be heavily one sided. So it's fantastic to get the other side on, the prosecutors to hear your opinions and your thoughts. So I really appreciate you guys coming on and having a chat with me. And, you know, I, I will fly the flag of the prosecutors more often on one minute remaining, I can promise you.
3: <laughs> well we we appreciate that. And and look, I mean, as Alistair said, and just just to reiterate, you know, we we really try, we really try to only prosecute the people who deserve it. We try to focus on the people who are actually dangerous. You know, we, you know, shooters. We call them shooters. It's like people who tend to shoot people. Those are the people we're trying to get off the streets. And it's a tough nut to crack. And there's a lot that could be. So we could we could spend ten episodes talking about sentencing reforms and and how all that works. And it it's not easy. But I think all we can do as prosecutors and people who are working in the system is try and take every every case on its own every person on their own. And remember that, and you've learned this, I'm sure from talking to these folks. And we say this in our podcast all the time, just because people commit crimes and just because people do really bad things doesn't mean they're monsters. It doesn't mean they're evil, irredeemable people. And I think what Alison, like Alice said, I would love, and, and, it, and we see it every now and then. And it's great. When you see somebody who goes into the system, who had a long rap sheet and comes out and turns their lives around, I mean, that's the win. It's not the long sentence, it's the win. It's when something like that happens, and it's far too rare, and I wish we could do it more, but that is the goal.
2: Brett, Alice from the Prosecutors, you absolute champions. Thank you so much indeed for chatting with us, and we'll talk soon, all right?
3: Anytime.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: You have one minute remaining.
2: Again, big thanks to Alice and Brett from the Prosecutors for joining me for a chat today, and uh, if you haven't heard the show, of course, why don't you go and check it out right now? One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay.